Good evening, listeners. It is February 18th, and you are turned into 88.7 KBVR Corvallis. It is currently just over 7 p.m. and then on a Sunday, so that can only mean one thing. It's time for another episode of Inspiration Dissemination. I'm Harrison Steerwalt. And I'm Kristen Finch. At Oregon State, we have more than 4,000 graduate students in over 80 different programs of study. And here on Inspiration Dissemination, we feature the research and personal stories of one of these students each week. If you're a graduate student at Oregon State University and you're interested in coming on the show or you just want to find out more about all the awesome things happening at Oregon State, check out our blog at blogs.oregonstate.edu slash inspiration, where you can find out all about our up and coming guests and links to our Twitter and Facebook pages. Inspiration dissemination is recorded live, and should they occur, any opinions expressed on the show are those of the hosts and their guests and do not necessarily represent Oregon State University or the station. Tonight, we are joined by Connor Yates from the Department of Robotics. Connor, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, absolutely. So I just have to first say, whenever I think of the, the major robotics, I just imagine people being outside with a remote and they're just working with some sort of ro- robot. Is that... Is that what happens in the College of Robotics? Is that what you do? Personally, me, not so much, but there is a little bit of that um, within our department. So in our lab, we are a fairly computer science-oriented group. So we do, I'm in the Autonomous Agents and Distributed Intelligence Lab, and as our name suggests, we work with autonomous agents. So in this case, robots that learn to think all on their own and can take actions all by themselves, and then the distributed intelligence part. So how do you take these large distributed teams of robots? How do you get them to work together to accomplish some task and do that with all without any human intervention? And so you're working on the second part you said? Yes. Okay. So I focus a lot on um, how we get these robots to learn. So if you have a team of robots, say, and you want them to go pick up some table for you because maybe you're lazy or something. Yeah, it's <laughs> nice to be lazy once in a while. <laughs> You know, this requires a couple of robots to go and do this, right? Unless you have one really huge, beefy robot that can just walk over the table with one hand and lift the whole thing over its shoulder, and you want to pay a couple hundred thousand dollars for that robot, (laughs) you're going to need a couple smaller, cheaper robots to do this, which means that they all have to go over to the table at once. They have to sit on each other's ends of the table and then pick it up at the same time. And so that's a really high degree of coupling that we need to extract from these robots. So... Typically, what we've done in these types of situations is we rely on something called reinforcement learning. And this is just the basic principle um, from artificial intelligence, which is if you have a program and you let it explore its world, it just gets to wander around and try and figure out what's good and what's bad. And you just tell it, okay, you've done a good job and you've done a bad job. Just by telling it those two things, you can get it to do whatever you want. So what we want to do is then how do we tell these robots when they're doing a good job, when they're doing a bad job, so that they learn not only to pick up the table, but learn how to pick up table as a team without any reactions. And they can do it not just for this table, but for other tables as well. Say, you know, round tables, octagon tables, (laughs) how you make these things generalizable, how you make them scalable. Yeah. And so, so you're talking about robots working as a team right now, and you're talking about the ability to learn through this, uh, kind of reward, good reward, bad reward type or, um, system that you have going. And, how long does it take for one robot to actually learn how to do a task? Because you said it's kind of a learning behavior. So how long does that take? How does yeah. that go? So 
one nice example is I think there was a quadcopter, you know, these little flying ones, and they taught it how to fly by having it crash about 100,000 times. <laughs> so this <laughs> is the good. order of magnitude that we're talking about. So unfortunately, we can't have yet have these robots walk into a room, try it, you know, half a dozen times <clears throat> and then walk out with a solution. You know, they, they require a lot of patience to work yeah. with. So this is where we use a lot of simulation tools because having, you know, 100,000 or 200,000 tries at picking up a table is a lot easier to do in simulation than it is to do on a real robot. And so how long, how long would these simulations take? Is it, is it quick? Can you go through them super fast or? Yeah. Um, granted as anything, it depends on how big your computer is. Yeah, sure. Um, but so typically we'll get through these things in mm. half a day to a day. You know, it's, wow. it's a fairly quick turnaround time. You know, sometimes you let it run overnight and you wake up and you have your cup of coffee and you can look at the results <laughs> in the morning. Very cool. So you, know, you can do all of your research overnight without actually having to do anything and you yeah. can just sleep while it's running, which is a nice benefit. I wish every all research was like that sometimes. And so the simulation part of this, that's to kind of work out the, the bugs, I guess, right, is what I'm picturing. You're at the computer trying to trying with these simulations and making things better and better every time. But in the, in the actual situation, we have a team of robots. They still, do they still have to go through all of those learning steps before they can move a table? Without simulation, they would. So one of these nice tricks is if you can build your simulation realistic enough so that it acts like the real world, but you can do it in a much quicker fashion, you know, you can simulate physics on a computer much faster than it happens in the real world. Mm -hmm. So if you can do it like that, then you can train on simulation. Take what you've learned from there and just put that computer on top of the robot and it just goes as if it learned how to do it in the real world all by itself. Wow. So it's like learning from the mistakes of the simulation that aren't actual real life mistakes. Exactly. Where the table might get broken or something. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so that's one of those big, you know, risks about moving these things from simulation to the real world is when we take it out of simulation, they're not perfect. You know, these yeah. are what we think will happen. And, you know, like any realistic plan, as soon as it hits the real world, something typically breaks. Mm -hmm. And so when we take these you know, policies that we've learned for these robots and we put them actually onto a robot, put them in a room, set up some walls or something and try and have them do something for us, that ends up being a pretty... Frustrating process at times. I'll just be blunt about that. <laughs> One of our uh, professors in the department says that every single time you touch a robot, it adds about a year to your PhD. So, so actually putting the simulation into the robot and you think that, you know, all of these things are already in this robot's brain. There's something that you haven't simulated that perhaps will reveal more problems. Is that what you mean? Yep. So sometimes it's that. Sometimes it's as simple as, you know, your sensor was not screwed down to your robot properly and it falls uh. off halfway through. That happened a few months ago. Oh no. That oh, was, we were wondering why it was having this really odd behavior. It, it didn't, the robot didn't seem like it knew where it was in the world because its sensor was not actually screwed onto itself. It'd be like if your eye was just floating around your face randomly, uh, it doesn't actually, it wasn't able to figure out where it was in the world because of that. And it ran into the other robots <laughs> repeatedly. <laughs> oh man. And so, um, you, you try and plan for these real world situations and you do the best you can. Uh, and then from there, it's just kind of uh, see how it goes. 
Uh, if you if you were really going to try and plan for every possible situation, like if you just wanted to have a robot that you could say go and it would work, how long do you think it would take to plan for every possible situation that it might reach? As long as the simulation that you have crafted mm-hmm. is realistic enough, um, it takes the same amount of time. Okay. So really, it's just a it's just a function of the simulation time that it takes. Sure. So and that's the really nice thing is. Typically, if you were writing out these policies by hand, if you were saying, you know, okay, the robot sees it's got a friend to its left, a friend to its right, it should go forward and its friend should go you know, forward and to the left. So instead of writing all of those out by hand, what we can do is we can say, okay, this is your world, figure out what you're supposed to do. And then when they see things in the real world, they just automatically know what they're supposed to do. And this results in really robust behaviors mm-hmm. so that you know, if it's close enough to something that it saw before, it can say, okay, this, this is similar to something that I've seen, so I'll treat this current world that I see as what I did back then. And it, as long as they're similar enough, it'll work. Okay. And I, so one robot learning to do something I imagine is you go through the simulation and then you apply it to real life and over time it'll become successful. But as you said, you talking about a team of robots with Mm -hmm. a table, I imagine that's, that's gotta make it a little more difficult. Yeah, for sure. So anytime that you have, uh, teams of robots working together. You run into this classic problem in, in the multi-agent systems, which is called agent noise. So if we're all taking random actions, trying to figure out what we're supposed to do, it's inherently difficult because there are other people in the system. So if I'm one person and I take an exploratory action to see like, oh, you know, what happens if I turn this lever? You know, And I see the world change in some way, I know that's because I turned that lever. Now, if there are 10 robots in this world and I'm turning this lever and I see, you know, maybe some door open somewhere in the room nearby me, I don't know for certain that that's because I turned this lever. It could be because, you know, my robot friend across the room managed to find a secret hidden button to <laughs> unlock a, you know, cool trap door or something like that. So <laughs> whenever I'm trying to figure out what's going on, I have to gauge it also against how much everyone else is trying to explore and figure out what's going on. And so this really conflates this idea of this noise so when i get the good robot bad robot signal at the end there's a little bit of trepidation right because you don't know how much of that is due to me how much of that is due to someone else in the team so what we do is we try and figure out okay so how can we hand out these good robot bad robot rewards so that we eliminate this as much as possible Mm -hmm. because when you eliminate that it becomes much like the single robot case becomes much simpler and easier for them to solve and so what are the, some of the solutions that we've come up with for doing just that? So one classic one that we have is um, what we call the difference reward, which is if I'm a part of a team and, you know, say we're playing soccer and my team's doing really well, we're scoring a bunch of goals. If I just give everyone on the team say, you know, okay, you guys won, good job. Or you lost, you know, not so good job. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> everyone on the team will see, you know, that win-loss ratio and that's what they'll learn what they do. So say your team of, say, six robots is playing soccer. Five of them are doing really great. You know, they're going around passing the ball. They're making cool corner kicks. It's, you know, it's a really riveting time. And then the sixth robot is you know, spinning in the corner, you know, just <laughs> absentmindedly, not even approaching the ball ever. Right? If you just hand out that blanket reward, that spinning robot gets told it's doing a good job. Right? That's obviously a pretty bad thing. So it'll, if you... You just told it was a good job. It would just keep on spinning in circles. Then you just kept exactly, playing. yeah. You keep telling it, "Oh, you're going. You keep going. Keep going. You're doing good. You're doing great." <laughs> so it'll keep doing that happily. Yeah. Right. 
So you can suss out what each robot's doing if you say, okay, if I wasn't a part of this team, would we still have won the soccer game? You know, the goalie, you know, they probably would have lost. You know, the four strikers, they probably would have lost if those those robots hadn't been there. And then the one robot sitting in the corner spinning <laughs> say, oh, if I wasn't here, it wouldn't have impacted the team at all. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so then that robot can say, okay, I need to change something because mm-hmm. I am not actually doing a good job with what I'm currently doing. I'm not working with my team. And so that idea is we've, we've floated around for a little while and we've come up with a cool little extension where we get into these problems that are kind of nonlinear. So if you have a team of robots and you are trying to you know, win a soccer game or something like that, you generally have you know, a number of goals, right? And so you can say, okay, we scored three goals this time, we scored five goals that time, we scored eight goals this time, right? It kind of creates this nice slope for them to learn how to maximize their goals, right? Mm-hmm. It becomes very easy for them to go from one to two to three to four, right? They can walk their way up that slope. When you have different situations, say in this table picking up scenario, if you have a whole bunch of robots, um, say it's a really, really heavy table, right? You need 20 robots to come and pick it up. And you're only going to tell them, all right, good job if you can pick it up. Mm -hmm. Bad job otherwise, right? Even if you have 19 robots, you're one robot away from completing picking up this table, they're still going to be told that's a bad job Mm -hmm. because they can't pick it up. Yeah, so it seems like it would almost like an all or nothing situation rather than like a chance for learning. That's like, oh, Mm -hmm. we just need we need to change the situation rather than just like, oh, yep. we failed. And even if there are 19 robots standing around a table where they're almost there, they still get an, a negative result. Yep, because they still can't pick it up. Mm-hmm. So what we do is we say, okay, if I'm a robot at this table and we give it a little bit of knowledge about what its task is, so we say, okay, I need 20 people to pick up this table. How many more people do I need here in order to do it? Right? It's a you know, kind of straightforward idea, right? You see how far away your whole team is from accomplishing this goal. And so that gives you a much smoother signal now because now you can say, okay, I'm one person away, I'm two people away, I'm three robots away from actually picking up this whole table. And what this gives us then is you know, this kind of smoother section for them to learn from. So they're all taking all their random actions, they're exploring their role, they're trying to figure out what's going on, and then one of them says, oh, if I stand next to the table, I'm a little bit closer. And then two or three of them come up and they're like, oh, if we all stand here, we're even closer than we were before. Mm-hmm. And that can snowball. You get these nice little stepping actions, these little stepping stone actions that go from one robot to two robots to three robots to hopefully lead them to come to it as a whole. Ah, micro steps or mini goals on the way to the large goal. Yeah. I see. And so is there, are the, are these little mini goals, is there a way to like kind of tier the reward system? Like, or is a mini goal as big of a reward as actually picking up the table or is it? Yeah, obviously not. Cause yeah. in the yeah, end right. of the day, you still haven't done it. <laughs> yeah. 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 So part of what we do is we, you know, we look at that balance, right? Mm-hmm. So how much do you reward these little stepping stone actions versus how much do you actually reward for completing the task? Sure. Um, and then you can see, you know, say you have so some of my colleagues in the lab work on is say you have several goals that you're working on all at once, right? So say I'm trying to, you know, walk across the street and get a coffee and, you know, take an efficient route, but, you know, not get, you know, step in the way of any bicyclists coming down the street because they're going to yell at me or something like that, (laughs) jump in front of a truck, right? You're balancing all these different things. And some of them aren't necessary to keep in mind all of the time. 
and sometimes they are. So when do you apply each of these little different mini goals Mm -hmm. on your way to actually figuring out what you want to do? Nice. Very cool. It sounds very promising. I just want to remind the listeners that you're listening to Inspiration Dissemination on KBVR Corvallis 88.7 FM, and we're talking to Connor Yates from the Department of Robotics. And uh, Connor obviously studies robotics and (laughs) teams of robots, which is really interesting. So what kind of future applications do you see for the once these... uh, teams of robots are once you have the their brains figured out and how to make them do things uh what what kind of things do you see happening with this technology one really promising area is autonomous search and rescue type scenarios so say you have burning buildings that you don't necessarily want to send firefighters into because that endangers their lives it would be much better if we could just send in a bunch of robots they can do it for us we don't have to put anyone in danger but they can still try and figure out what's going on and obviously in this situation more robots are better because you have know more sensors on the ground mm-hmm. to be able to figure out what's going on and this will also work you know kind of interestingly well in say outdoor search and rescue too where mm-hmm. you have you know, some ground. robots flying around some crawling along the ground how do they work as a team in order to locate lost hikers and help extract them out of there so search and rescue is one big application and another application that's actually going on right now is amazon robotics so amazon and their quest to ship everything as fast as they humanly can <laughs> <laughs> have turned away from using people inside their warehouses as much as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the big advantages is this is that they, in each single warehouse, so they've got you know hundreds of warehouses around the c- country, each one of those warehouses where an item will go from you know something that you buy, it's, they figure out, okay, where do I need to get all these items from inside the warehouse, put them in a box and send it off to you. Figuring out where all of those items are and getting them to one person to put them all into a box is done completely automatically by robots. So each facility, if I remember right, has around 40,000 robots in it. Wow. Um, they have done a tremendous job in terms of actually taking one of these large multi-agent systems and applying it into a real-life scenario. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of interesting. It was a company that was originally um, called Kiva Systems, and they were bought by Amazon, and now they're part of the Amazon Robotics group and so what they do is they have these little robots they're about probably three feet long two feet wide half a foot tall and they just drive around on the ground and they drive underneath a giant tower of items that are just kind of haphazardly packed all together but the computer knows what's inside that tower mm-hmm. and they'll just pick up the tower and bring it to someone and then they'll say okay you, should, you need to grab this thing from you know the third level and the person will grab it and put it in the box and then the next robot will come by with the other tower and says okay this package also needs you know this item from the fifth level on this tower. Someone will grab it and put it into that box as well. So all of these you know, 40,000 robots in every single warehouse then have to coordinate all of their movements so there's no collisions. They need to make sure that they don't run out of battery. They need to make sure that they're also minimizing the amount of time that it takes to go retrieve something, bring it to the edge, so that they can then get it to a person to put it into a box as efficiently as possible. That's how they maintain this high throughput for their order volume. That's how they're able to maintain their you know, two-day shipment guarantees. Mm-hmm. That's wow. really cool. And so so those are some future applications. And what's something that you would like to see from robotics? Something that you, some maybe 10, 15 years down the road, something that you'd like to be able to do or ha- contribute to? One important thing, I think, is when these systems start to interact with people more and more, we're going to need to be able to understand what it is they're doing mm-hmm. and why they're doing what they do. So... Our colleagues in computer science in computer science department here also work on this. This is this idea of explainable artificial intelligence. So how do you take this 
what was previously known as this black box. You know, you give it information and it outputs actions. It, out, it just does something. And you're like, oh, that's that's cool. It's very effective <laughs> it at what it yeah. does. <laughs> <laughs> no idea why. And so now we're trying to solve the answer of why do we do this? You know, And I think this has really big implications for these multi-robot scenarios because if you have the ability to explain one robot's actions to a person, that means... You can take a bunch of robots, put them together, and they could theoretically be able to explain their actions to each other, which should allow them to coordinate better. So I would really like to see these incredibly high level of coordination that would happen among these robots. So one thing I always have in mind is like, you know, a professional basketball team, right? If they're, they're running back and forth along the court, there's not a whole lot of direct communication going on, but they're able to do something sometimes, you know, really incredibly complex highly precise timing things, you know, mm-hmm. passing the ball, you know, exactly to where it needs to be at the exact, you know, microsecond for someone to catch it and, you know, slam dunk or something like that. <laughs> and it is to get robots to pull that off would be incredibly difficult, like yeah. mind blowingly difficult at the moment, you know, enabled for them to be able to do it in so many different scenarios. And that's the biggest thing is, you know, you can create one team of robots that can dunk one, one ball exactly one way pretty easily. Mm-hmm. You you tell them to figure out how to dunk a ball, you know, a thousand different ways, depending on how the defenders are on the court. It becomes you know, computationally attractable sometimes. So figuring out systems to where these robots are able to explain themselves to us and to each other, so that we can see you know this really autonomous, high level decision making going on as a whole team. I think that'd be really cool. It's yeah. like robots being able to strategize with their human creators yeah. you know, of how to best <laughs> do something. And this would be really important in things like uh, extraplanetary expo- or, guess, extraplanetary exploration. <laughs> that's, the, that's the right <laughs> words, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, right. We have these robots on Mars. JPL does a really good job building them. They land them there, and they still work, and they can talk with them. It's really mm-hmm. cool, but they only really do one at a time, right? And these are huge multi-million dollar missions. One nice thing is that Mars is, you know, a couple minutes, I think it's like 10 or 20 or something like that. There's not a lot of time delay between when they tell a robot to do something and when it does it. Mm-hmm. It's not instantaneous, but it's not long. There are other cool places in the solar system that I think would be really nice to explore. You know, places like Europa, places like if we had a whole team of robots out on Pluto, you know, the icy dwarf. It, uh, us being able to talk to them and tell them exactly what to do is going to be pretty bad. Mm-hmm. To say like, oh, you think this rock looks really loose. It might fall on my robot and crush it. <laughs> it should move right now. Yeah. <laughs> then you got to wait three hours to see if it managed to uh, get that message before the rock fell on top of it. Right? Yeah. yeah. They need to be able to have this more independent ability in order for us to actually get something useful out of them. So maybe it's a, there's another robot there with it and it can alert that robot that the rock is about to fall down. So they're commuting rather than rather than getting like the three hour lag time of you're watching the camera just in horror that your mission's <laughs> about to be ruined because your robot's going to get crushed. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And then instead of it happening like that, it's in retrospect, the watcher robot can say, well, I told him to move or I told this robot to move because he was about to get crushed by a rock. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> instead of, oh, the robot moved, but we don't know why. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, I think um, we should talk about how you got interested in robots in the first place. Now yeah. that we know your future aspirations of wanting to know why robots do what they do. So yeah. why do you do what you do? I do what I do. Uh, sometimes it feels like it was just pure chance. Um, <laughs> I guess that's how most journeys in life feel. So I grew up with a you know 
here in Eastern Oregon, grew up in Baker City. If there's anyone listening, you know, like five of us. <laughs> <laughs> and my dad was a botanist for the Forest Service, you know, so I grew up in, you know, kind of scientific minded household. Mm-hmm. And that definitely shaped about how I wanted to do once I grew up and went into the real world. So came here to Oregon State for my undergrad and was originally going for mechanical engineering because I thought it'd be fun to build rockets for NASA. And then mm-hmm. one term later, I switched out. <laughs> and then another term later, I switched out of that major. So I was went from mechanical engineering to electrical engineering to computer science all within the first year. Yeah, And that was just due to me going around taking different courses and seeing what was actually out there instead of coming in with my you know, predisposed ideas of what I actually wanted to do and then having reality you know, slap that. <laughs> be like, nope, that's, uh, that's not exactly what you want to do. You don't want to sit there doing thermodynamics equations for your entire life. And it's a good choice for me, myself. <laughs> yeah. 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 And then so you were in undergraduate here at Oregon State. Yep. Right. So I've been here for a little while. And since I'm here for my PhD, I'll be here for quite a while. <laughs> <laughs> but I try not to think about the time. So I did my undergrad here in computer science. And um, as a part of the honors college, you had to do a thesis, you know, kind of similar to like a project masters or something, mm. something small, you know? And so I was talking with some faculty. There was a little mixer going on and my advisor, Con Tumor in robotics. Um, don't know if I've mentioned that yet. Sorry, Con. Uh, <laughs> he gave a little talk and he was just like, this is what our lab does. We do multi-agent robotic stuff. I'm like, Oh, that sounds, that sounds really fun. And so I went and talked with him afterward and he gave me a handful of papers to read and said, if you don't run away screaming, uh, come on back and be happy to have you in the lab. <laughs> and I read that's through them and it was a lot of fun. And so no I, screaming, no yeah. screaming yeah. involved. Yeah. That's <laughs> a great sign. Yeah. It's yeah. always encouraging. And so I was joined in there about my junior year and I've been there ever since. And so some days it just kind of feels like you know, dumb luck. Like, mm-hmm. I just happened to find computer science as a really fun major that I enjoyed. And I just happened to find this lab uh, with a topic that I find really interesting. But, you know, I'm sure if I sat down and like actually thought about it, I'd say, oh, you know, this led to this, led to this. And it, it wasn't just these purely luck scenarios. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of everyone kind of makes their own luck. You, exactly. you try different things until one sticks and then you just work hard and make your own chances kind of. Exactly. Because it's one of those things like, you know, it feels like dumb luck in the moment, mm-hmm. but when you sit down and reflect and you're like, oh, I actually, you know, I went through three different majors in order to find this one. And I took a whole bunch of classes and talked to a bunch of professors to find yeah. out a research area that I liked. And so the the feeling of dumb luck kind of ignores the work that gets put into discovering what it is you like. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So, so you're a longtime beaver. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, you're starting just your first year of PhD now. Yes. Yep. So graduated um, from from here, yeah, obviously, <laughs> uh, this last June and um, went straight into our PhD program here in robotics. Um, and it's been quite a ride. Yeah. Yeah. Jumping from undergrad to graduate school was definitely a bit of a change. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's still, still some adjustments going on in terms of how to prioritize the workload and all the stuff that you have to get done. But it's something that I do feel is an incredibly fun experience at the end of the day, you know, no matter how little sleep I get some days or, you know, how much work that it feels like I have to put in. I still, at the end of the day, I sit down and I can feel like this is fun. Yeah. yeah. It's you a know. good feeling. You're doing what you want to do. Exactly. Yeah. You know, it's painful, but it's, I couldn't imagine myself doing anything else. Yeah. Yeah. And so do you think, I mean, it's, you're just starting your PhD, so this isn't necessarily right around the corner, yeah. but 
what do you think you might want to do once you're once you're done with uh, school? Once you're done with your doctorate. Um, I think it would be nice to go and do a postdoc somewhere else, yeah. um, especially to try and go see what other labs are like. We had um, a postdoc in our lab for the past few years, and she was from Australia, and she is now at a postdocing over in Zurich or in Switzerland. And so I'm sitting here thinking like, okay, if I can travel the world, get paid like you know a modest sum of money to do so, and actually still do my research all at the same time, that's a triple win. Yeah, yeah. That'd be pretty cool. Triple win. So the way things are going, I would really love to do that. Yeah, kind of stay in academia. You know, maybe go get a job if I you know want to. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, at least try it out. That's kind of where I am too. Yeah. Let's see yeah. what a postdoc yeah. is. Let's see if I like this academia thing exactly, or not. Yeah. yeah. Well, Connor, we're getting uh, close to the end of our show, but um, one more thing that I wanted to have you uh, share with the, the listeners is what you do in your spare time and yeah. kind of a, um, you know, immediate goal that you'd like to have uh, accomplished. Yeah. So in, in my spare time, in my weekends, every now and then, I have a small robot at my house. It's a Neato Botvac, um, very similar <laughs> to a Roomba. The only major difference is that it's a has a lighter on top of it, so a laser radar. And this allows me to get a really high resolution uh, map of my floor plan of my house really easily. Um, with the eventual goal of being, I'm gonna push a button and the robot's gonna drive over to the fridge, fridge is gonna open the door, and the beer's gonna pop out and the robot's gonna grab it and it's gonna drive it back to me. <laughs> so I can sit on the couch, just pull up my phone, hit a button and a beer will be in my hand and you know, It'll probably take about two minutes for it to complete, but I don't have to move at all. Everyone's dream. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so where are you in this process? I'm about halfway through now. So I've gotten the robot where I can drive it around. I can tell it to go to the fridge and come back to me. That part's working fine. Now I have to do the uh, kind of complicated part of how do I get a beer out of the fridge onto the robot? Mm -hmm. So my, my current idea is copy what they do in vending machines, essentially. So... I'll have something, not sure what, but have something open the door for the fridge so the robot can pull up and there'll be some sort of treadmill or a little spiral thingy like there's in the vending machines and it'll advance it enough so one beer will just fall into a little bucket on top of the back of the robot. And the one really nice thing is this avoids grasping, this avoids the robot having to actually try and pick something up, which is an incredibly difficult problem in robotics that <laughs> many, many people are still working very, very hard on. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so conveyor belt in the in the fridge with the beers stocked exactly. and the robot being able to catch those and then bring it over. Yeah, I don't want to sit around uh, try and wait for grasping to happen because uh, <laughs> I'd like the beer to happen first. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. and we know it would have to learn that a thousand times. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be a lot of wasted beer if I just let it do it that way. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, Connor, um, we, we have a couple of traditions for this show that uh, we'd like to ask you for. Uh, the first thing would be some advice that you could give to, you know, undergraduates entering grad school, other graduate students, or even uh, previous you that uh, you'd <laughs> like to give some advice. So uh, do you have some advice you'd like to say for the show? Yeah, um, definitely stealing this a little bit from Jorge Cham, the author of PhD Comics, and that procrastination <laughs> is okay. I saw his talk last week, and I think that's a very true thing. It's okay to procrastinate from time to time, as long as you don't do it all the time, right? Because mm -hmm. you don't get anything done, but... What it really comes down to is you need to carve out time for yourself. Mm -hmm. Procrastination is just one method of doing that. No matter what you do, if you're going to get a job, if you're going to stay in academia, wherever you are in life, you need to carve out time for yourself. Otherwise, you're just going to go stir crazy. Mm -hmm. And forcing yourself to do that, while it will feel a little bit bad at first, 
because you're like, ah, I, I could be working on something right now, which is definitely the feeling that I have <laughs> yeah. all the time in grad school because yeah. it's always something to do. That guilt. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's definitely a guilt. Yeah. Yeah. That guilt, it never really disappears, but trying to just shove that down as much as possible <laughs> yeah. is, you know, important for your overall just yeah. well-being. Something that everyone, I feel, forgets every once in a while. It's a good reminder. Yeah. Exactly. Yes. Um, and then our final tradition is to have you provide us with a song. And yeah. you've actually provided us with two songs. So the first one we're going to play is Herbie Hancock. And, and can you tell us what song it is and uh, why you chose that song? Yeah. So this first one up is Cantaloupe Island off Herbie Hancock's Maiden Voyage album, I believe. And personally, I really like this song. I was in jazz band in high school. We played it every single year, uh, almost at every single concert. We've, we played it a lot. And it's just a... <laughs> Nice little jazz tune, um, really fun to solo on top if you're into that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And it's it's got a nice tight melody, um, really straightforward. Nothing too complicated about it, about it, but it's just nice, happy, and uplifting. Mm -hmm. yeah. And then the second is Feather, by I'll let you say <laughs> the yeah. name. So Feather is by uh, Nujibis. So he was a Japanese R&B artist who tragically passed away, I think like ten years ago now, um, in a freak car accident. Uh, Found his music through um, some friends and some stuff online, just kind of, you know, wandering, wandering about. And it's this genre that they call it now. Uh, everybody's going to kill me if I mess this up. But lo-fi hip-hop. Yeah, that's what it is. And so this <laughs> is uh, they take a lot of samples. They just create like a smooth beat. You'll probably see some stuff on YouTube for this, actually, you know, like you know, chill study music, stuff like that. And it's this, it was really calm, kind of relaxing little bit hip-hop a little bit electronic mm -hmm. but not overly polished attitude towards it just kind of raw real yep all right well we'll Very start cool. it off with the uh, cantaloupe island but thank you connor yates from robotics for being with us yeah thank you for having me this is a great program yeah absolutely it's good talking to you and you're listening to inspiration dissemination on kbvr corvallis we've got two songs coming up from connor yates and then we'll be back with some more music and to tell you what's around the corner for next week uh, you heard it on KBVR Corvallis. <laughs> 